are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, thank you, Cherie, for reading that passage for us. Thank you, Andy, for that kind introduction. Um, I just want to thank our pastors really quickly for this first time opportunity to preach. I'm really grateful to be up here sharing this passage of scripture with you all this morning. Well, if you're new with us this morning, um, we have been journeying through Paul's letter to the Romans. And um, this morning we have finally landed on Romans 12. And to get us situated in this text this morning, I want us to reflect on an experience that most of us probably share. For every student preparing for some sort of career, there's generally some moment where you've acquired all the head knowledge you need for the job, right? You've taken the exams, you've studied hard, you've researched, but you're not quite ready to enter the workforce yet. Why? Because you haven't made the transition yet from theory to practice. For example, in seminary, before I could take my preaching classes, I had to take the biblical languages. I had to take my history and doctrine. I had to take Old and New Testament theology. I had to know my stuff at a deeper level before I could apply it and before I could preach it. I had to make that transition. And the same can be said about the Christian life. We have to make a transition from theory to practice. We should know that Romans 12 is a transitional chapter. In Romans 1 through 11, Paul had been grinding out some theology, and it's as if he had someone in his head saying, okay, Paul, this is great, but what do I do with this? There's so much that you've given us, but how do we put it into practice? This is what we begin to see in the first two verses of Romans 12. And we continue to see it all the way through the end of the letter. Paul is moving from doctrine to ethics, from theory to practice. So in thinking about this transition from theory to practice, we're gonna look at three things. We're gonna look at Paul's reason for it, our response to that reason, and the result that follows from that response. You know, I've learned a lot of things from Andy over the years, and one of those things is how to be a good Baptist and use alliteration in my preaching. So we got three R's, reason, response, result. Beginning with Paul's reason for this move from theory to practice, we need to pay attention to the first word that we see in the CSB. We look at verse 1, and the first word we see is, therefore. Now, you might be inclined to think that there's nothing significant about the word therefore, but in order to know what Paul is about to say in verses 1 and 2, we need to ask ourselves this question. We need to ask ourselves, what is the therefore there for? And what we discover is that the therefore is there for connecting us readers all the way back to Romans 1. Everything that Paul had talked about from Romans 1 to Romans 11. And notice how Paul refers to everything that he had just written about. Paul writes, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God. In view of the mercies of God. 
In other words, for Paul, everything from Romans 1 to Romans 11 is about one thing, the mercies of God. I love the way the great theologian John Stott explains this. Stott says, for 11 chapters, Paul has been unfolding the mercies of God. Indeed, the gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners in giving his son to die for them, in justifying them freely by faith, in sending them his life-giving spirit, and in making them his children. That's a great summary of Romans 1 through 11. But I would add one more detail that we see in verse 1 that adds to this idea of the mercies of God. Look at how Paul addresses his audience. What does he call them? Brothers, sisters. Now, again, you might say, so what? But Paul's word choice here is very deliberate, right? We need to realize that God, in making us his children, has also made us brothers and sisters. Remember that one of the primary reasons why Paul even wrote this letter was because there were tensions between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in Rome. But Paul's whole argument from Romans 1 to 11 provides the basis for this radical idea that all believers, no matter race, no matter ethnicity, no matter socioeconomic status, no matter gender, all believers can be one in the family of God. The mercies of God are both vertical and horizontal. In making us one with him, God has also made us one with each other. Now hopefully that gives us a better idea of what that therefore is there for. These are the reasons that Paul begins to transition from theory to practice, from doctrine to ethics. Now this also shows us this morning that we too have a good reason for making this transition. And the reason isn't, as some might be inclined to think, the reason isn't fear or legalism. For those of us who have put our faith into Christ, we don't do so because we're scared of God. Right? We don't do something in order to get something from God, as if he owes us anything. right? No. According to Paul, it's because of the mercies of God that we're urged to act on our faith. It's because of God's grace that we're urged to respond. Think about what the Apostle John says in 1 John 4.18. John writes to his audience, There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. And then in the next verse, John says, We love because he first loved us. Being united to Christ means that we are in God's love. It means that we are no longer under the wrath of God. So it's not fear or legalism that drives us to respond. It's instead the mercies of God. Pastor Tim Keller explains, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Christianity says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Another scholar puts it this way. He says, Christian ethics are ethics of gratitude. Our motivation to move from doctrine to ethics, from theory to practice, isn't fear or legalism. It's gratitude for God's grace. It's God's grace that leads Paul to make his appeal. And this is what now leads us to consider point number two, our response. Paul writes, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. 
holy and pleasing to God. Now, it's important for us to recognize what Paul doesn't say here. Notice that Paul doesn't say, I urge you to present your souls to God, or I urge you to present your hearts to God or your spirit to God. No. Paul says, I urge you to present your bodies. Just like Paul's first century audience that he was writing to, I fear that many Christians today may have bought into some form of Platonism, which would say that the body is bad. The the famous philosopher Plato and his followers actually had a slogan that said, Soma Sema Esten, the body is a tomb. They regarded the body as a tomb in which the spirit was trapped inside. So for them, all that mattered was the soul or the spirit. And unfortunately, I think there's many today in our churches that think in a similar way. The material's bad, the spiritual's good. What Paul is doing here is confronting this false teaching and urging us to present not just our souls or our spirits, but our bodies as a living sacrifice. Worship not only involves our souls or our hearts, it certainly does include this, but Christianity involves so much more than this. It involves our entire being. True Christianity involves whole body worship. Why? Because both body and soul belong to God. To illustrate this point, I want us to consider what Paul says in Romans 3. If you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and flip back there because I want you to see this. In Romans 3, Paul quotes from the book of Psalms and the prophet Isaiah to describe human depravity and sinfulness. And he uses explicit body language to describe what he's talking about. Listen to what he says in verse 13 of chapter 3. He says, their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Do you notice the body language that Paul uses there? What Paul has in mind when he calls us to present our bodies in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, is to flip Romans 3 upside down and to do the opposite. Listen to how John Stott illustrates this. When we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, this is what will happen. Instead of our feet being swift to shed blood, we'll walk in his paths. Instead of having viper under our lips, we'll speak the truth and spread the gospel. Instead of our tongues being used to deceive, our tongues will bring healing. Our hands will lift up those who have fallen. Our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed. And our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. Don't you long for that, church? Don't you think our world longs for that from us? This is what it looks like to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. We present our whole selves to God as a sacrifice. And when we do this, I think we'll inevitably be a blessing to others. You know, Jesus, is, Jesus says that the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or in other words, love the Lord your God with your entire being. And the second 
love your neighbor as yourself. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther has a great quote where he explains that God doesn't actually need our good works. God doesn't actually need our good works, but you know who does? Our neighbors do. God doesn't need the good works we perform with our bodies, but God wants to use our bodies to be a blessing to others. But maybe you're thinking to yourself this morning, why would God want my body, though? My body is imperfect. How could my body be holy and pleasing to a perfect God? Maybe you're like me or my wife, and you struggle with chronic pain on a daily basis, and you recognize just how frail your body is. Maybe you have some sort of physical disability, or maybe you're just advanced in years, and you recognize that your body isn't what it used to be. The question is worth thinking about. How can our bodies, which are imperfect, be holy and pleasing to a perfect God? Especially considering how the Old Testament demanded the sacrifice of what? A perfect, spotless sheep. How can our bodies be holy and pleasing to God? Well, we first need to recognize that what Paul is talking about here isn't a sacrifice for sin, right? The book of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that Christ offered a once and for all sacrifice for sin. There's no need for another sacrifice for sin. Praise God. But that's also, ironically, that's also kind of the point. The Apostle Peter says something similar to Paul in 1 Peter 2.5, but I want you to notice the interesting detail that he adds. Peter encourages readers to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, um, but it's through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ. Do you catch that? It's not, it's, it's, it's because of Christ's perfect sacrifice, this once and for all bodily sacrifice, that our bodily sacrifices are now acceptable. But also consider just how often God uses imperfect bodies to accomplish his will. Consider Abraham and Sarah, who were well advanced in years, yet they remembered God's promise for them, and they conceived their promise on Isaac. Consider Jacob, who offered his limping body to God. Consider Moses, who offered his imperfect, stuttering mouth to God, and how God used Moses to deliver the law to the Israelites. Consider the writer of Romans, the book that we're going through. He offered his thorn in the flesh body to God. And most importantly, consider our Lord and Savior, Jesus, God in the flesh, who offered his bruised and beaten body on the cross for our salvation. You know, I also think about some great figures from church history, figures like the great reformer John Calvin, who uh, dealt with severe asthma and migraines um, and arthritis, yet he still wrote thousands of pages of commentary on scripture and theology. I think about the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who uh, suffered from gout and depression, yet still preached some of the most phenomenal sermons you'll ever hear. I think about Amy Carmichael, who lived in India as a missionary for 55 years, despite ongoing battles with neuralgia that would leave her bedridden for weeks at a time. And you know, this doesn't just apply to famous Christians. I think about people within our own church body. I mean, consider all the mothers in this room who go through intense pain 
just to bring children into this world and raise them. Consider people like Grayson Campbell, who offers his body uh, to serve others, even through physical pain and injury. The point is this, no matter who you are, or what kind of body you have, or what kind of job you have, you could be a lawyer, or a doctor, a custodian, a stay-at-home parent, no matter who you are, God can still use your imperfect body for his purposes. From all of these biblical characters and leaders in the church, we have a mountain of evidence that God actually works through imperfection and weakness, not despite it, right? If that's you this morning, take comfort, because that's how God works. God uses imperfection to make it abundantly clear that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. It's good news that God doesn't expect from us a perfect sacrifice. Christ was that perfect sacrifice. Our daily sacrifice to God is founded on our gratitude for that perfect sacrifice. And now we are in a position to offer our imperfect selves, all of our imperfections to God, so that we can allow God to use us as he pleases. And when we do this, Paul says it's a holy and pleasing thing to God. Now, to order, in order to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to understand that in the Old Covenant, the burnt sacrifices of spotless sheep were described as giving off a pleasing aroma to God. But in the New Covenant, the perfect sacrifice has come in the death of Christ. As commentator James Edwards explains, because believers have been crucified with Christ, who is the perfect sacrifice, it's now the aroma of life that is more pleasing than the aroma of death. The presentation of our lives as a sacrifice unto God is holy and pleasing to God. And Paul says that this is our true worship. Again, notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say what we do on Sunday mornings is our true worship. He doesn't say singing songs is our true worship. Paul says that what we do with our bodies on a day-by-day basis is our true worship. Worship is the way we live, not just what we do on Sunday mornings. We worship God, Paul says, by giving ourselves uh, to him in sacrificial service every hour, every minute. So we've seen Paul's transition from theory to practice, how it clearly involves a reason, right? The mercies of God are that reason. We've seen how we are to respond to that reason, but let's also turn our attention to the result that follows from this. Paul says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. What Paul is doing here in verse 2 is fleshing out everything he had just said in verse 1. How do we present our entire selves to God? By no longer conforming to this age, but by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And what happens as a result of this? We discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. In thinking about what Paul says at the beginning of verse 2, I think we need to recognize that everyone has two paths in life. There's the path of this age, and there's the path of God. There's this age which is passing away, and there's the blessed age to come. 
We can be conformed to this age or we can be conformed to the image of Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8.29. Now, I think we all know that there's an obvious answer to which is the better option, right? If it were a simple matter of choice, I think all of us here this morning who desire to live the Christian life would rather be conformed to the image of Christ. But we do need to recognize and acknowledge this morning that this age that Paul speaks of is deceptive. It's alluring. It's attractive. James Edwards explains that modern society beams a collage of intense images at believers and non-believers alike. Through the media, through advertising, polls, style, social and materialistic pressure, and ideologies. These images, Edwards says, are most effective when they are least recognized. In other words, we are bombarded each and every day with the temptation to be conformed to this age, right? We're bombarded with the temptation to be more like this world, whether that be through the deceptions of greed and lust, or just the simple pleasures of binge-watching TV or gossiping. I'm preaching to myself here. The question is, how do we combat this? I like the way Edwards answers this. He says, the age indeed works on us, but so does the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm afraid that many Christians don't understand uh, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, fully God, fully personal, not a cosmic force like the force from Star Wars. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies the work of Christ to us. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws us to salvation, who transforms us or sanctifies us into the image of Christ. In fact, the Greek verb that Paul uses here for be transformed in verse 2 is the word metamorphouste, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. This word is the same word used by Matthew and Mark to describe the transfiguration of Jesus where Jesus is seen on top of the mountain to his disciples, and he's appearing completely changed, shining and translucent. And Paul uses this word to describe the way the Holy Spirit changes us as believers. The Holy Spirit performs a metamorphosis on us by leading us away from the pattern of this age and into the image of Christ himself. When we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, He begins to transform us for the better. And Paul says that this transformation, this metamorphosis, begins where? In the mind. Remember what we just talked about. Christianity is a whole body experience. It involves the entire body. But where does it start? It starts with the mind, and it extends to the body. And just as Paul probably had Romans 3 in his mind, when talking about presenting our bodies as a sacrifice to God, I think Paul probably has Romans 1 in his mind when thinking about our minds. In Romans 1, Paul talks about how all human beings, Jews and Gentiles alike, from the beginning of of creation, the time of the fall in Genesis 3, all human beings have suppressed the truth with our minds. But now Paul talks about how these same minds can be restored 
for those in Christ. As Tom Schreiner puts it, in Christ, our minds are not given over to futility, but are renewed to understand the truth. We're transformed as our thinking is altered. Now, I think there's an obvious question about application here. What do we have to do to renew our minds on a daily basis? What do I have to do tomorrow morning when I get up out of bed and I start my week to renew my mind? This is where I think the idea of spiritual disciplines is really helpful. Maybe you've never heard of spiritual disciplines. Well, Dallas Willard is an expert in this area, and he defines the spiritual disciplines as the types of activities that Jesus engaged in. The activities Jesus himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of his Father. So let's ask ourselves this question. What kind of activities did Jesus engage in? Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus practicing solitude, silence, prayer, reading scripture, sacrificial living, serving others. Now, do these things come naturally to us? Of course not. When I wake up in the morning and I go about my day, I don't naturally want to do these things. But friends, we have to remember that these are the means by which the Holy Spirit works in us to transform us into the image of Christ. Every person has a daily liturgy or a daily routine that structures their day. We have to discipline ourselves to include activities that help us become more like Christ rather than more like the world. In the same way that people don't like physical exercise or the feeling of their muscles aching after an intense workout, we don't typically like to spend long periods of our day in the Bible or reading scripture. And also, we need to recognize that most of the time, it's our feelings that dictate our behavior. When we feel like doing something, we do it. When we don't, we don't. But maybe, just maybe, we've got that order backwards. I want us to consider something that C.S. Lewis once said. Lewis wrote, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as though you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Does that make sense? I think the same can be said about all the spiritual disciplines, whether it be prayer or solitude. Don't feel like doing it? Do it anyway, and you'll come to realize just how valuable it was that you did that and how much you actually enjoyed doing that. As we submit to the Holy Spirit's transforming work, I really do believe that the desires will follow. And the result of this transformation, Paul says, is the ability to know God's will and follow it. The result is that we will see God's will as good, pleasing, and perfect. The result is that we will desire to submit our bodies and our minds to God as a sacrifice. The result is that we'll be more like Jesus. You know, we're currently approaching the season of Lent uh, starting this Wednesday, which is a time for Christians around the world to imitate the pattern of Christ when he fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. 
So for the 40 days of Lent, many Christians decide to give up something in order to draw closer to Christ. That something might be food or certain drinks or TV or social media. Some Christians decide to add something to their life in order to get closer to Jesus, something like prayer or solitude. Maybe there's someone here this morning who needs to give up something or add something to their life as a way for, of allowing the Holy Spirit to transform them into the image of Christ. Again, it's not easy to do this. We don't naturally want to give up something or add something to our life. But let me ask you this. Don't we want to be more like Jesus? Shouldn't that desire outweigh the desire to maintain status quo? Friends, we always must remember that the goal of the Christian life is to not just, not just to go to heaven when we die. The goal of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus. We offer ourselves to God as a sacrifice. We let God transform us by his spirit. And in so doing, we become more like Jesus. How do we do this? By putting our doctrine into practice. By using our minds and our bodies to love God and love neighbor. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't personally experienced this transformation. Maybe you haven't experienced for yourself in a personal way the mercies of God. This morning I invite you to respond to the gospel. Respond to Jesus. Trust in Christ's victory over sin and death on your behalf. Maybe you're a Christian, but lately you feel as though you've been more conformed to this age rather than the pattern of Christ. Brother, sister, remember the mercies of God. Remember Christ's perfect sacrifice for you. And ask the Holy Spirit to transform you into the image of Christ. Remember that God is bigger than your sin. God is bigger than your propensity to wander away from him. Ask God to turn you around and point you to Jesus. Let's respond now and invite God's transforming work in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. You are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, you didn't leave us alone in our sin, but by your grace, you assumed a human body and you presented your body as a sacrifice for sin for us because of your love for us. Now, God, you equip us by your Holy Spirit and you call us to present our bodies back to you. God, help us by your Spirit to do this. Help us to know what it means to submit ourselves to you each and every day so that you can transform us into the image of Christ. Transform us, Lord, into the image of Christ so that we can better follow you and know your will in our lives. God, we ask you to teach us to worship you. And we ask this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. This is 
on a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.